Hey, this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our spotlight is on business. My guest is Janice McLean DeLock. She is CEO of BlackShoppingNetworks.com. Go over there. Minority-owned businesses, especially those owned by women of color, seldom have the resources or connections to really get started in a great way. So Janice has provided the tools needed at theblackshoppingnetworks.com for minority-owned businesses. We talk about business in general. Janice also hosts her own show on Urban One and WOL in Washington, D.C., as well as It's Janice. Go over to her website at theblackshoppingnetworks.com. Janice and I are coming at you right now. Well, first of all, I want to welcome you to the show, Janice. And I really appreciate you being here. You have a timely topic of entrepreneurship. And what I would like you to do is tell the audience a little bit about you, other than the bio we read. Where are you from and uh, what got you into the entrepreneur bug? So, uh, thank you, Sabrina, for allowing me to be on your program today. Um, so, a little bit about me. I'm an entrepreneur who is a serial entrepreneur and... I started out um, uh, modeling, and eventually I progressed into um, creating my own fashion agency because I was a little frustrated with the opportunities that were not available for five foot four black women from East Baltimore, and so I wanted to find a way to fix that, and I came up with a company called Visa Fashion Agency. Um, I did that for a while, and then I ended up doing the um, uh, event planning for a company called City Search. And City Search, the platform for City Search was to be able to allow these models that I had trained when I started my own fashion agency to have opportunities that they could put their talents and what they had learned in my modeling sessions on display. So I would go to different cities and do fashion shows and event planning that featured my models, modeling local designers and stores that were new that people didn't know about to um, support and promote the models, but also promote the new merchants and and, and fashion designers. In, in Well, they were new to me, but merchants and fashion designers in those areas, and the designer or the stores would pay my models to model their clothes and I got fee as um, the agency representative, and that's kind of how I ended up going into uh, doing uh, event planning. And so um, as we did the fashion shows, often I noticed that the women would always have pantyhose holes or runs in their nylons, and I was really it was kind of frustrating because we were, off, we, were <laughs> we were buying a lot of hosiery. That's when people actually were still wearing hosiery, and so uh, I. At the time, I still worked and was in transition to another job and went on a job interview. The interview was um, for an oil company, and I remember going to the interview, and I had a hole in my pantyhose. And my dilemma was first finding a place that actually sold pantyhose and then finding somewhere to put them on and then being on time for the interview. So, and I didn't have enough time to... I found a place that sold the hosiery. They were horrible. The colors were ugly. It wasn't much of a selection. So I went with nude. That was the color, nude, N-U-D-E. And then I put those on, and I went, uh, I got the hosiery, and then I was going to put them on, and I found that there was nowhere for me to change because the building that I was in, all the restrooms were in on the floors where the companies were. There was just nothing for people to walk in off the street to change. And so I'm wow. like, okay, so this yeah, so so do I go to the interview with the holes, or do I go outside and find somewhere that I can change and get these, these pantyhose on so that I go to the interview professional? If I do that, I'm going to be late to the interview. They're not going to hire me because I'm late. But if I go with this hole in my pantyhose, they're going to think I'm unprofessional. So either way, I'm going to lose. In the end, I chose to go to the interview with the hole in my pantyhose. And I mean, it, I'm not talking about a small hole. I'm talking about one that was so huge that you could probably see it halfway down the block. So oh I go in, 
<laughs> now, women got it right off the bat. I'm sure they didn't miss it. The guy didn't care less. He needed an administrative assistant. I probably could have went in there with, you know, with, um, he, you know, a bag on my head, and he probably really could have cared less as long as I could show up that following Monday and start what he needed. So I ended up getting the job, and uh, I loved the job. Actually, it was Crown Central Petroleum was the name of the company, and I stayed there, and I worked there about seven years. Um, but the more I thought about my episode and the fiasco with the pantyhose, I was like, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I created a pantyhose vending machine in 1989 and um, went on to get really good clients. I, I had churches. I had three churches that were my clients. I had uh, one airport, uh, BWI. I had uh, Aerotech Staffing, which was owned by the uh, NFL um, football franchise owner, Stephen Bashotti. Uh, who still owns the Ravens, as a matter of fact. He owns the Ravens football team. So, yay to Maryland and the Ravens. You know, go guys. And uh, Stephen Bashotti and his assistant at the time, her name was Pam Lund, uh, really gave me the opportunity to uh, get these machines in their building, and they contract, contracted with me. They paid me every month. They were my first corporate clients. And, you know, here's this guy who actually has a stake in the NFL franchise, but he was really supportive of women. And I was really happy about it. It was just really amazing to see back in that time that a white man was that supportive of women. Not, I don't think it really mattered that I was a minority woman. I think he just was really supportive of just kind of giving women the things that they wanted and trying to help them. And I was a woman-owned business, which I think he really, you know, was for as well. So I was very surprised by that. But they were great clients, and I had them for uh, a couple of years, and then the market changed a little bit. And um, the whole hosiery industry just kind of started to go south. But my frustration with that, time period wasn't so much that I didn't have clients. The frustration was that I couldn't get enough money to get the machines made because I was financing them out of my own pocket. Mm -hmm. And um, I go to the Small Business Administration and SCORE, the Service Corporation of Retired Executives, and Ms. Bidfa, the Minority Business Development Financing Authority, and I'm begging, literally, for money to get these machines made because people really were interested in, in having them in their buildings. And I just could never get the money, and I was just really frustrated with the system, those agencies, and just what people had to go through just to try to make a business materialize. Now I'll pause there if you'd like um, before I go into the second half of how I ended up where I am today. Well, um and many people are frustrated, many um, minority business owners, even with the uh, supposed COVID help. You know, you're trying to get and keep a business afloat. How long did it take you to get um, the help that you needed to get those machines made uh, and to be able to get back to business? So with the uh, pantyhose vending machine, I was working machines. I was working full-time, like I said, for the oil company. So I was financing it out of my pocket. Uh, fortunately, at the time, I was married, and my husband worked, and he made good money. And so he took care of all of the bills for the house, and I financed all of the machines with the work, with the money that I made from working at, the, at my corporate job. And so uh, I never got any funding from any of those agencies. Uh, no matter how much, I mean, one time, literally, I was very close to walking in and standing on their desk demanding <laughs> that they give me money. And um, it, it was always some, just some circus. Well, you don't make enough, or you don't have enough credit, or your credit's not good enough, or you need collateral, or you need to put investment. I mean, it was always something. And I remember clearly saying to a gentleman who worked for SCORE, the Service Corporation of Retired Executives. Now, I'm going to say that again. The Service Corporation of Retired Executives. So these are executives who have retired from corporate service for companies that they didn't find or found. 
Mm. It's easy for somebody to walk in and manage something that somebody else has created. Right. It's another to actually create it <laughs> and tell you what I did to do so. Wow. So my, I asked them, you know, I said, it's really easy for you guys to tell me what I need to be doing because you can manage something once I create it, but I need to know who's going to help me create it. And, I mean, literally, I just kind of went to battle with all of them. I mean, if you say my name to any of them in 1995 or before <laughs> or, or even after, they probably like, ah, yes, because I wanted to know, and particularly with the Small Business Administration, which strangely, you know, I do, and I'll fast forward at some point to the TV and the radio programs that I do, but I've interviewed people from the Small Business Administration and from SCORE and from Ms. Didfa. I mean, I've had them on my show. They've been on my radio programs. And, you know, and I'm asking them the same question because if you guys, listen, if you and I, Sabrina, somebody gave us $20 million and they said, here, here you go, go, go run this agency. And we had 30 people that came in that month. And six months later, we didn't know what happened to those 30 people. Mm-hmm. Somebody would that someone would want answers for me and you. Yeah. We'd have to explain what we did with a twenty million dollar budget, who we helped, mm-hmm. how, what happened with them after we helped them, or or did they were they successful, were they not? There's absolutely no accountability for any of these agencies, even today, who get right. all those millions of dollars. And so my question was always, well, if you could, you know, when you go in, they have you fill out all these forms and say. You know, fill this out so we can track how many people came to this office. Where's your exit form? When I leave this office, you're not asking me to fill it out after six months. You're not sending me a survey in the mail saying, did these guys help you? Did they? Nothing. And so I was really frustrated with that whole process about how they could track people coming in to get dollars, but they did not track people when they left. Who was successful? Why were they successful? Did you have anything to do with it? What resources did you give them to help? You know, what, just what, you know, what accountability can you guys show me for this money that you got to do absolutely whatever you wanted and nobody is tracking what you do, particularly among women and minorities? They don't have any records. They don't know. They don't want to have any records. They don't want to know because then you'd have to talk about the disparities between the money that you give to Bank of America and the money you gave to Janice McLean Deloach. So we don't create it. We don't have to answer it. And she's asking. She's asking by herself. As long as somebody else understands what she's saying, we're good. Yeah. So to answer your question, how long did it take me? It took me um, like three years or more, and then I just really got frustrated with just asking and asking and asking and never getting the answers I was looking for. So I started looking for the answers because I wanted to know what they were. And um, at that point, I continued to service the clients that I had, but I did not embark on getting new ones because I knew that I wasn't going to have the money to make the machines and people were going to get frustrated with waiting for me to do it. So I just didn't embark on new clients. I serviced the ones that I had with the money that I had as long as I could sustain, but eventually it fell through because I just couldn't keep up with the demand and and ordering the product and paying people to service the machines. It just So I ended up folding because I could not find the money to sustain myself, which is interesting right now in 2020, Minority and women-owned businesses are having the same struggle right now. And the difference is because, again, they are being denied access to funds like PPE because bankers are giving money to the largest clients. So the little people on the bottom level aren't getting anything because the larger companies are snatching it up. Why? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, also, um, pooled resources. I don't know whether they were doing that when you started in your business journey, but what around you in terms of black businesses, were there anyone, any people, any groups that you could go to to do any presentations? Did anything like that even exist for you? Yes, it did. That's a great, that's a great question. You know, nobody has ever asked me that in any of these interviews. Yes. So to answer your question, there was a group called Women Entrepreneurs of Baltimore. I was actually in class seven of that program. It started in 19 um, – actually, I just saw their bag the other day. I think it was 1997. 
I don't know. I forget. <laughs> I forget. I had their bag, and I was going to tell you if I could find the bag, but I don't know where the bag is right now. But women entrepreneurs of Baltimore was focused on doing exactly what I just told you. They were focused on and what you mentioned, filling the gaps for women who couldn't get money or funding through any of the traditional banks or programs or agencies. So when I came to them with my idea, they loved it. They actually gave me $1,200. I had to make $100 a month payments um, over 12 months. And um, it worked to get – I was able to get two machines and some product. But the machines were really expensive back then. Like now I could probably get a machine done for probably $300 each. Then it was like $600, $700. So Women Entrepreneurs of Baltimore was one of the companies that really – existed to help people like me who were trying to start businesses and grow businesses. And I was from Baltimore City at the time, and I was a woman. So it wasn't even based on what color you were. It was just based on being a woman and being in that area. And I qualified, and they they really did help. But it wasn't enough, but they were there. And unfortunately, they have just disbanded since, too. But they were around for a while. I also went to Harbor Bank, which was a black-owned bank, in Baltimore City, and uh, I was a little dis- disappointed with them in that they did not help me. They did not finance what I was asking for, and I was actually one of their customers. I was banking with them, although I didn't have millions of dollars in the bank. I was working at my corporate job, so they were getting my you know, my paychecks that were, were deposited to my account. So I was a customer, but they weren't able to help me either. And that was pretty much the extent of it that I can think of right now. Sometimes, you know, things get lost in translation. It's been a minute, you know. Wow. Um, if if there were, because, I mean, you know, you're talking about uh, you living or being at least near to Delaware, but, I would think, if you're talking about Baltimore or Washington, D.C., there, at that time, if I understand, many black businesses, et cetera. So they weren't of help. Um, and I want to throw this out there. We had a burgeoning upper middle class of, and, 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 and higher than that in, in, at that time, of blacks that had businesses. Were there any leagues, not just for women, but in general, where people banded together to help other businesses, because that's what many um, ethnicities, they have that kind of a network. You said were there black businesses that banded together? Yeah, coalitions, black businesses, not just so much women. And the reason I'm asking this is that many people who come to this country um, Africans, Haitians, others, they're able to get a business up and running like that. In right. the African-American community, because, of uh, you know, what we went through in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we had a burgeoning middle class that could, under the table, send money to a civil rights movement, or to, who, who could, you know, have money to start a, a Motown, or a, a you know, Philly International, or you know, um, deadly products. You know what I'm saying? We had that at one point in time. Was it declining, do you feel, in the 80s and 90s when you first started? Do you think that that network of, of, of people, because those people were able to get capital, but they started in segregated times, not integrated right. times. Do you think that um, the coalitions, were on the lawn like they are now. You can't find many business coalitions that are uh, coalitions that are black. I think that. Well, I know there were coalitions that existed. Uh, I know that they were there were then when I I first started with all of my stuff uh, with my modeling agency with the pantyhose vending machines with the event planning. I know that. Definitely there were groups at that time who could have helped me then. I know that they can help me now. The problem has always been connecting the resources and people being aware of what resources are in their community and around them. A lot of times we fail because we just don't even know what resources we have available at our fingertips. And that's one of the reasons why the blackshoppingnetworks.com is important to me because what I want to do is list – each business and each city and what businesses are in that city and what type of businesses, but also resources that may be available to assist businesses 
in that city. That's exactly what I'm going to do with this. Because I understood it was so hard. A lot of time that I wasted and I, I failed at some things and my businesses failed because I just wasn't aware of what was available to me. I just didn't know. And um, those agencies, Miss Bitfa is one of them, the, min- the uh, Minority Business Development Financing Authority, they are really, in fact, I was really a little perturbed with them because they were the largest minority business financing authority back then. In fact, as a matter of fact, they just closed up maybe two or three, maybe two years or so ago. But they should have done a better job of connecting the dots for people that were going to the SBA or score offices. I mean, there are black women and men, minorities and, and women who are going to these offices every day right now. Somebody's got probably 20 people in the city that I'm in will go to an SBA office. And if you had made made that an option available at all of those offices, a lot of the black businesses who could have benefited from that and still can didn't know about you and still won't know because they're not advertising it like that. They, the other thing that I was I lobby a lot about is with the SBA and in these offices about why they don't have legal representation for people that are coming to these offices. You know, with the you get twenty and I'm just using twenty million dollars. Some of them get more, some of them get less. Mm-hmm. You guys should have an attorney on staff to help these business people when they're walking in this door. Why don't you? But anyway, let me go back to your question. I know those agencies and those resources and black groups were available. We weren't connected to each other, so people didn't know about them. And the ones that did know were the ones who were getting the money, but they weren't sharing it with the other people who didn't know. And so I think that happens a lot. Wow. And that is where the loophole is. When the information is not shared, we miss out. And um, I'm glad that you're speaking on this. Now, your Black Shopping Network, um, how long has this been an idea for you? And I know it is um, probably inspired by all the things that you've been through as an entrepreneur for over three decades. Tell us about the Shopping Network and what uh, can can help uh, entrepreneurs to thrive in this space. Okay, so the black sh- it's it's the black shopping networks dot com, and I say the because some people forget to type in the, <laughs> so that's really important. Yeah. The black shopping networks dot com, and so this is a culmination of a journey over thirty years, and it also comes out of my experiences as a black woman entrepreneur pitching her products and her businesses to select few companies who hold the keys to the gate and decide whether or not they think that black and brown people and women-owned companies are important enough to put on their platforms. And I got tired of waiting for validation. So wow, I decided to do something about it. Now, that comes from, as a child growing up, having a father and mother, who were both very entrepreneurial in spirit. My father, even though he worked for Bethlehem Steel and Copper's Company, which at the time were two of the biggest companies in Baltimore City in terms of shipbuilding. And, um, you know, because Baltimore was always an old steel mill shipbuilding kind of city. And a lot of the black men were fortunate enough to get really good-paying jobs with Bethlehem Steel and um, Copper's Company. And my father... (laughs) really loved money, so I don't say love it, but he didn't like not having what he wanted. So he was willing to work for it, and he did. So he worked at Bethlehem Steel and at Copper's Company, and he drove a cab. And he would always say, you know, whenever my mother was complaining about she worked for Reed's Department Store, which at the time was segregated, and she hated how they would treat the black customers, and she would advocate for the black customers that were coming in the store that were being discriminated about. In fact, she got fired because they got tired of her always standing up for the black people's rights that would come in the store and the way they were treating them. And um, she she loved to cook, and my family has, loves to cook. We've got a lot of great cooks in my family. I'm not one of them, unfortunately, but we have a lot of 
great cooks in my family. And so when she got fired from that job, she was complaining about what was wrong, blah, 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 blah. My father said, well, look, he would he always say, you can, you hens need to stop cackling. <laughs> we were always, you know, it was a house full of women. And he's like, you hens just need to, you know, stop complaining about it. If you're not going to fix it, if, you, if you're going to fix it, then you don't have to complain about it. And if you're not willing to fix it, I don't want to hear about it at all. And um, it's always stuck with me. He's like, if you can change it, if you can fix it, then do it. And if you're not willing to do that, then I don't want to hear you complaining about it. And as a child, that just always, everything that I've ever done has been a result of me fixing something that happened to me in my life, but also benefits so many other people across the board. And the BlackShoppingNetworks.com is that very vehicle. I remember going to a large shopping network, and I'll tell you, QVC, pitching my book to them, Autobiography of an Entrepreneur, that I had written after going through a really tough time trying to find a job, being downsized out of a job, not being able to find, you know, just, just really looking for a job, and but also being on the fence trying to be an entrepreneur and trying to work because I had a family too. I still have a family, but I know what it's like to be that entrepreneur who's teeter-tottering. And then there are times that when I was not, working, I was truly an entrepreneur. And when I was, it worked well. But oftentimes I had businesses that the times or the culture changed and something shifted and then I had to pivot again. But every business that I've ever done has always been a result of something else that's happened to me. But I've also been able to benefit other people while helping to support myself and advance my goals too. And the BlackShoppingNetworks.com was something actually I thought about about four years prior to me actually launching it this year. But I was working, and I was dealing with other stuff, and it just just seemed like it just wasn't the right time. And then I needed manpower because it takes a lot to try to get these this uh, this platform off the ground. As a matter of fact, uh, I, ha- I have a sta- I have a staff meeting this morning. I got another one in, in another hour. And um, so that's not true when I say I have a whole bunch of time, but I do have some time. But the BlackShoppingNetworks.com was really launched under my fire and fury of going to QVC and submitting my book. And really, not only did they just not accept my book, they didn't even think enough of me or think I was important enough to them to even write a note to say, thank you for submitting your product or your book. We're not interested. We can't entertain it right now. We don't have any more room. Just nothing. When did you go to got it? Um, oh, my gosh. That's, like I said, that's been about maybe three years ago or more. Yeah, my book's three years old. Three years, yeah, three right years ago. Now. They're featuring black businesses every week almost now. I know. I know. Have you seen that? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So. Yes, I know. And you know what's interesting though? They put something up there earlier. They only had 13 businesses. Now I don't know if they're featuring hmm. the same 13 or whether they went out and got some new ones and gave them some free space because now they know that there's the black shop and networks.com and I know they know about me because every time I go on my computer, QVC pops up now. Wow. Not HSN or Evon, it's always QVC. So you know it's Facebook. Facebook's tracking all of that and controlling all of that because they're partners with those companies. Okay. So yes, they are featuring businesses every now, at now. But when I went and did the research, it's 13 businesses. And they are 13 very wealthy, well-known companies or, or people who have a lot of money. Remember I told you there was a cap at 10,000, you need 10,000 widgets, or you need a certain amount of money to be on their platform. So these people either have the money or they have the widgets or they know somebody who works at QVC and said, come on, we can put you up here right now because this lady's really talking about what, what we're not doing, which I was. So it, whatever they're doing, it's great that they're doing it. Because black people do need that. But they didn't do it until this year. So I've been calling them out. Why haven't you featured black people other than models, modeling somebody else's stuff on your network and profile these businesses until now? 
because now they know that there's a black shopping network that's going to steal all that, all the people that they denied. Now they're like, oh, man, that's a whole revenue area that we totally missed. No, they didn't miss it. They didn't think we were important until the black shopping networks was born, and now they do. Because when they did that feature, they did it the same week I launched the black shopping networks.com, the first week of July. How important do you think um, our black media, print as well as television and radio, are to a you know to the black shopping network dot com? I, I feel that if we had kept the ebony and a jet and a and the other platforms that we had, um, and had they digitized early, um, the black shopping network would have those resources also to get clientele. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And actually, you, you bring up a really good point. Um, I need to advertise with them. I need to ask them to be a partner to support this. I have not done done that, and I actually haven't even thought of it until you mentioned it just now. So that's a, a really good point. I'll definitely follow up on that, and, and thank you for that. But I do think they're very important. Mm-hmm. They're very important. We're losing our black media because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the talent is hired away to other corporate companies. But if we lose our own voice and our own way of marketing and reaching our own people, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But, you know, it's not just on white companies that are bringing our black media to them. It's also black companies that are selling out and refuse to stick together and 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 just let that be our strength. Um I I, I don't know. I mean it I think it's twofold. I think we don't have to sell our companies to people. So well, but yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's a choice, yeah, but you're right, it, you know, but you have to also get people uh, to go in with you, the Lone Ranger thing of the past. Right. It really doesn't work. <laughs> it's, I mean, right, um, right. I mean, I mean, think about it. People were mad, and I, I read, in, read in, you know, some of the magazines, well, why didn't Barry Gordy or why didn't all these big conglomerates, why didn't they just sell to their own people? Well, who are they going to sell right. to? Well, who can buy it? Listen, I, I, I talked about this the other day. I got on a tangent about three weeks ago with all these black millionaires and billionaires that we have in our community. We do have them. And I called some of them out. And I'm not just talking about Oprah and Tyler. Right. There's Robert Smith. There's Rich Lou Dennis. There's Puffy. There's LeBron James. There's, uh, what's the other black lady? Um... Even a lady who just sold BET, um, you right. know, and they're probably tired, but she's got $500 million. In fact, her her revenue has doubled to, she's a billionaire. She did something, she acquired something, and her income went from a half a million dollars to a billion dollars. Um, it's just, it's this, this really 17 millionaires and four or five black billionaires. As a matter of fact, Tyler Perry just became a billionaire. So if each one of these, Tyler Perry, okay. So if each one of these millionaires, now people could do what they want to do with their money. They don't have to do anything. Jay-Z, um, Beyonce, <laughs> for that matter, right? These guys have all these millions of dollars. Now, they don't have to give to anything. They don't. But if you are always talking about what's wrong with our community and how you want to fix things with our community, if each one of them, you have 52 states, pick one state, donate a million dollars to black businesses, black commerce, cha chamber of commerces, to um, black pharmacy schools and, and med schools and business schools to help foster and grow entrepreneurship in just one state. If each one, any of them just pick one state, we got 52 states, just pick one, invest a million dollars, give 
$250,000 over here to the Black Chamber of Commerce, because there's one in every city. Give $250,000 over here to the Black, you know, a business council or whatever. You know, give $100,000. With a million dollars, you could change so many things in each city across the country. So instead you just got one person sitting over here with a billion dollars doing absolutely nothing. I mean, Oprah, instead of going over to Africa, I'm not saying that Africa's not important, but Africa got a lot of rich people over there too. Instead of going to Africa and investing all that money, why didn't you invest some of that money here in the United States? Again, you a billionaire. Pick a city. Give them a million dollars. Send Robert Smith just sent 100 students to college and paid their tuition. Oprah could have done that too. So there so are ways that, that we can, How do we know that they we don't, we don't know? We don't know, and and that's that, that's the argument. Some of them probably are, but you know why are you hiding it? Oh, I know why. <laughs> yeah, because they don't really want people to know what they're really what they really stand for and supporting. They don't want to cut their money off. I get it. Not necessarily. You know. I got I got another case, and we'll talk about that one day. I have oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you said they'll cut it off altogether? No, no, not necessarily that either. But like I said, I I know a little bit about the money the money game, and uh, okay. I, but I understand what you're saying also. Um, in mm-hmm. in terms of the support on the on the resources and of black people working together collectively and, right. and helping one another. I think there should be more of that, mm-hmm. um, most definitely, because many other people come in our country and we wonder, you know, well, why is it that they can open up whatever strip mall and keep it going? Right. Well, right. they've got resources and people backing them, and uh, they stick together. And it's interesting. This is off the cuff. Notice now, many of our, our our people who look like us, who come from other places, they won't hire an African-American. <laughs> okay. Very true. Very true. Very true. Um, in Washington, D.C., I was able, blessed to see a lot of businesses, um, the Industrial Bank, the Ollie's, you know, Ben's Chili Bowl, and, you know, Dudley um, Beauty School, and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, then mm-hmm. Jamaicans had their restaurants, and people from Bahamas owned theirs. And uh, I was able to be blessed to see many great businesses and be inspired by them. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that in 2020 and beyond, we're able to see many more businesses and many other people join in with the Black Shopping Channel so we know about them, so we can support right. them. Because you're right, there are many great resources and great people who are designers and, and uh, people who create uh, makeup lines, cosmetics, and as as well as, as technology that we just mm-hmm. don't know about, and we should. Right, right, and even with the Black Shopping Networks dot com, I need financing. I need funding. I need vendors. That's what I need right now. I've got, I've got shoppers. I have over 600 shoppers right now. But they only have 27 vendor choices because people don't know about my platform. So I need vendors. And I still need shoppers, too. I always need shoppers. But I want the shoppers, the vendors that are on there right now are getting great, you know, great traction for me because I only have 27 of them. Can you imagine if I had 200 of them and, you know, just variety? And so I need that. And so I do need funding and, and I do need investment dollars, but I also need manpower. And um, and this is part of the reason why some of my things weren't successful because you, I just can't do everything. I need people to support me and, you know, and and maybe that means volunteering a couple hours a week. Maybe that means working free. But if you really believe in what I um, am doing, then you're willing to do that. So, um, you know, so, you know, but at the same time, you know, I I said I was thinking about some of our leaders and how I felt like they just – have dropped the ball on trying to really support black entrepreneurship and minorities and that kind of thing. 
But I also understand why they do it. They're probably tired. I mean, it is tiring. You you know, we you, you're building something. You work so hard to build it. You, you know, you need some help. Sometimes you can't do everything. You need other people to really come in and and support and pick up the, the helmet and, care, you know, pick up the ball and carry the ball for you sometimes. And especially when they see that you are struggling to do it and they also see that um, you've got something that's worth, you know, con- continuing the progress on. So, I, again, I'm puzzled by why. We, as people, don't. I mean, the, there have been other people who did black shopping channels. There have been other people who had other attempts at networks. And so why have none of them really been successful? And it's not because the idea wasn't good. It's not because it's not good right, right now. The difference right. is they didn't have the manpower and they didn't have the funding and they got tired. And they just quit. I know exactly why they did it. I, I believe that's why it happened, and I feel like that too. But I also feel like I've invested a lot of time. I've had a lot of ideas and businesses that I've started that have failed, and some of them have been successful. Because to me, I've been really successful all along the way. Even in my failures, I still was successful because I learned from them, and I learned this time why this will work and why it won't. And part of it is manpower. Huge part of it is manpower. But I'm also learning to surround myself with people who are smarter than me in certain areas and who want to see this be successful just as much as I do. And um, I I don't know, but sometimes, you know, you do get weary. You do get tired. You do want to quit. You do want to sell out. You do want to just say, you know, why am I doing this? Because nobody seems interested in this but me. But if we all collectively come together, we definitely can can make a difference. And I just don't understand for the life of me why we don't. I just just don't get it. I really don't. So Yeah, and, and, you know, it's it's interesting. I've I've seen it on on your side, but I've also seen – the very successful businesses where the patriarch or matriarch wants to pass that business along to the next generation or so. And because that generation is in that business, they're not looking at it as a plus. They're not looking Mm -hmm. at it as an asset in terms of them being able to work for themselves. And they wind up, because of that arrogance, losing that business, having to now go out for the first time. And work for somebody right. else. Right. And they regret it. Many of them, not all, but many of them do regret that. They they had something yeah. right there that they were trained to do, and they just weren't willing to stick that out. So now they're working somebody else's vision and someone else's I brain. know. I know. That's crazy, isn't it? Because you, you know, I don't know if you've ever done, done a business. I, I assume you're probably really interested in entrepreneurship either because you had a business or you want to go on business or family had some people background. In business. Oh, yeah. serious background. Yeah. yeah, they had serious background. They made serious <laughs> bank. And um, I'd seen, you know, the ones who want to keep that up because they know the importance of passing on that legacy. Uh, they, they know the importance. The only difference between the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s and having those businesses like the Kathy Hughes coming into uh, business and the Robert Johnsons and the BT, Bob Johnson, all those is that a lot of that was built in an area in a time of people who knew what the segregated times were like, what it was like to have a black business. Today, mm-hmm. we're in 2020, and many of the predecessors, uh, there are a few that are still around. I've mentioned them. There's Chili Bowl. There's Industrial Bank. Um, and there are many, uh, very few black banks like there used to be. But there, there are other mm-hmm. businesses, but we equate people like the Oprahs or the Jay-Zs or people who are in entertainment uh, as mm-hmm. as uh, major business people. But there used to be serious business business people. There used to be people in construction and technology and, you know, doctors and chemists. And, you know, there was a variety mm-hmm. of different types of people who were business people, and they did very well. It's just passing that along generation after generation and, and making people understand the importance of that. That's where we're at. We see Black Lives Matter everywhere right now. 
Yeah, right. Black lives do matter, but we need an economic base. That's where it starts. The politics only works yes. when you have the economic base. Right, they, they, right. They're and they're missing they don't, they don't get it. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. They, they just, right. They marching for nobody's marching for economic empowerment. That was why the Black Shopping Networks dot com was launched on July seventh. Because they were talking about this is how crazy we are, right? We said, okay, we're going to boycott businesses on July seventh. We're not going to spend any money with anybody. Black people aren't going to spend any money with any other businesses. Now that's crazy. Because if you're not spending money with black businesses either, what are you fixing, <laughs> right? So. If you don't spend money with other businesses, but you decide to support black businesses on that day, now you're changing the conversation. So that's what what I talked about. But back to your other point, um, it's it's hard. Why I need for this to work um, is because when you are used to working for yourself or trying to create something for yourself, and then you try to go back and work under somebody else's thumb. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't go very well. Now I can do it. I've done it, but then you can't really tell people, "Oh well, you know, I understand what you're doing, and probably why you shouldn't do this, or what you could do better about it." Because then they think that you know it all, and that you, you know, it just, you know. So you have to be stupid when you go to work for other people. You can't really tell them that you know anything about any of this stuff the way that I know it, or you know it, right? Unless we're working for other business owners. Who are like we are? It's very different to go work. You know, it's very hard to go work in a corporate setting with people who don't understand what we understand about why it's important to be an entrepreneur. It's just really hard to do. And I can do it. Do I want to do it? Nope. So. Hmm. Yeah, and and the importance of the um, entrepreneurial and gut black businesses should be as important as history of the civil rights and other movements because, um, you know, take Madam C.J. Walker or take the um, Garvey um, history. Mm-hmm. He was all mm-hmm. about business. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, well, it, 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 we have to get back to to really in stressing the importance of that to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the education of the um, Black Shopping Network, I, I think, can help mm-hmm. enlighten college kids, junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many times it may have to be outside of an educational setting also, with maybe within churches too. It's vital mm-hmm. that we get the economic base moving forward and why right. that is important. Right. Especially, well, especially now with what's going on in, in the economy. Yeah. <laughs> especially now. Oh, yeah. We see a lot of, we see a lot of big um, businesses. Uh, Bergdorf Goodman going out of business. Mm-hmm. Well, so is Macy's. And so you're seeing, you know, the, the stores either downsize, right size, and, and we are kind of like in a reboot right now. Uh, do you think mm-hmm. many people will want to go back to working a traditional job unless they can work at home? No, I think they're now demanding it. They're going to demand it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I do uh, think they don't want home? to go back to working. What'd you say? You said, do I think people want to go back to working a traditional job full time and just being in an office in a high rise somewhere all the time? Yeah. No. No. No, 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 I don't see that. I don't see our schools even being filled. And and I know colleges are really rethinking a heck of a lot. Do you really want to have the Harvard, Princeton, or, or Rutgers experience of fifty grand or more a year, or hundred grand or more a year, and you can't physically be on campus? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, would you right. send, would you send your your kids there and say, oh, well, no. just gonna, you know, they, <laughs> yeah, we're paying a hundred grand to stay home and learn on our computers. Right. Right. And it's the same thing with business, which is really when I did – so I created the show called Entrepreneur's Edge TV, and it was focused mm-hmm. on just that very thing. I knew that it, I could just see the trends, that people weren't going to – I knew this day was coming. Like, when everybody else thought, I was just like, ah, he didn't know. Yeah, I did. That, yeah, I did know. And you know what's funny? Nobody will say, 
You know, Janice said that. Well, they won't say it to my face anyway because they don't want to hear me say I told you so, right? I said, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, in 10 years, people are going to want to have their own businesses. They are not going to want to work for people. They are going to work for themselves, and people are going to be forced. I swear, these seriously were my exact words. Forced to take their hobbies and make them their employment. I've been saying that for years. And so it's not even really a me being right, although I do get gratification in that because people are always telling me I'm wrong all the time about stuff. And then when it happens, they're going, well, maybe she wasn't so crazy after all. But it is in creating, seeing what people are getting ready to come up with next. It's going to be some I, – I track – sometimes I keep looking at how many businesses and what kind of businesses and and the most creative time in our history that businesses were created. And it always comes back to the late 1800s through the end of the 1920s, every single time. And for some reason, the year of 1912 and 22 were very popular. I don't know why. But you had companies like Morton Salt, you had Heinz, you had Levi's, you had um, radio. Radio itself was invented during that time period. Um, the Chamber of Commerce was in 1912. I just I, had my, I do a radio show. I just did that on my radio show yesterday. I did history, historical trivia. It's not actually trivia and historical facts and that kind of thing. And the Chamber of Commerce itself was created under President Taft in 1912. So I think that 2020 is getting ready to be the year of new creation all across the board, all around the world, for a lot of reasons. And we really need that to happen because yeah. Macy's is going away. Bergdorf Goodman's is going away. The oh My gosh, they closed down the Broadway. The whole city of Broadway's theater district is shut down. <laughs> Arts and entertainers and singers and performers are all out of work. What do they do? Well... People go to school, they spend years paying all this money for college tuition only to, like you say, have this huge debt that now you're not even sure if you're going to get the job that you went to school for all these years for, spent all this money, went to Harvard and Yale and all these schools, that you don't even know if you're going to have the opportunity to, to, to use that degree now. So what was the point? You know? Right. Um, it's a mess. But I think... The silver lining is going to be we're going to be we're going to emerge as a better society, a more fair society, and probably come up with some really great companies that are new. 